Well, thank you and good morning. Good morning. I want to say good morning to Ording Valley. And uh, I want to tell you, keep an eye on my wife. She's down there this morning. Make sure she's taking notes. Uh, she needs to hear my sermons. So, um, And also, for those watching Traditions and online, glad you guys are with us this morning and here in the room. Uh, you know, we are a renewed people, as, as uh, we've heard. We're renewed over and over again by God. He's always refreshing us, renewing us. And part of that is because the Bible often characterizes life like a race. Now, how many of you enjoy running? You're, you're that, that unique few. Nobody raising hand. Okay, there's a few runners in the room. Okay, how many of you used to enjoy running before it hurts so much? Yeah, I'm, I'm in that category. Um, and how many of you running just sounds horrible? It's just hard work for no reason. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. And, and the Bible says that life is a little bit like a race. There's multiple different places where it kind of says, hey, you got to run the race, run it well, that kind of thing. And I'll tell you what, I don't, I don't necessarily love to strain myself, but I hate losing. Anybody else, you just hate losing? I hate losing. It's, it's definitely an area where the Lord has had to, had to sanctify me a little bit because I've been known to uh, not be the godliest of people when losing is a possibility. And so Jesus is working on me about that. You know, I've had to, my wife has been a voice in my life at times. She's like, Caleb, I think you need to step out of this one. You know, you need to not play, uh, you need to not play this game or do this thing because it just gets too wrapped up in it. I love to win. Now, I will say to those of you that are competitive, before you feel too bad about it, the cool thing is Jesus really likes to win too. He just always does it with like good sportsmanship and you know, he invented sportsmanship, all that kind of thing. Jesus likes to win too. And Jesus desires for us to run the life, the race of life well and to be victorious in it. And as we shift kind of out of our Renew series into a new series, we're gonna talk about what does it actually mean to be victorious at life according to the one who actually judges the race. Because at the end of the race, at the end of life, there's only one opinion that determines whether we won or lost the race, and that is Jesus. And in the next couple chapters of Revelation, you know, we preached out of who Jesus is and what does it mean to be devoted to our King who sits on a throne in heaven and is, is ruling from heaven and is with his churches and is cheering us on. We talked about that, but now we're going to hear from Jesus of what does he expect of us as his church, and how do we live up to those expectations and arrive victorious at the end of this race, which is really the beginning of a much bigger one, the beginning of a much bigger adventure in eternity. And so we're going to look into Revelation chapter 2 and 3 at, at Jesus' letters, his, his messages to seven specific churches. And these seven churches uh, were seven historical churches that had specific situations but they also represent the church worldwide in every generation and the different things that churches struggle with, the different things that churches are called to. And so we are gonna look at this and every one of these letters ends with Jesus saying, to the ones who will be victorious, I have a reward. And he states different versions of that reward. But I know I want Jesus' reward. I wanna win at the race of life. I wanna be victorious in Jesus' eyes. And so let's dive in and let's look at what he has to say to us. Let's start in Revelation chapter 2, right in verse 1 there. And Jesus says to John, the apostle who's writing this, he says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I want to pause right there for a moment. Jesus introduces himself as the author of each one of these letters a little bit differently. We learn a little bit more about Jesus in every letter, but this time he introduces himself similarly to how he ended Revelation 1. He says, I'm the one that holds the stars in my hand, and I'm the one that walks among the lampstands, and you'll remember those stars are symbolic of angels, that Jesus has the angels in his hand, that he is Lord over the angels. He's not just another, you know, extra special angel. He's king of the angels. And that those angels are angels that he sent to his churches. And that the way that Revelation portrays it is that there is at least one angel sent to every church. Now, we don't always understand throughout Scripture how angels interact with us, how they they help us. All we know is that they're there, and occasionally in history, they show up in a big way and reveal like, hey, I've been here all along helping you. You just didn't know it, and now you need to have an extra message from God. And I find comfort in that, that Jesus has commanded an angel over Sound Life Church. Isn't that amazing? He's commanded an angel that that is assisting us, that is doing spiritual warfare for us, that is cheering us on, and that also is commissioned like us to advance God's mission in the world. Now, don't get too caught up in that, because we can start focusing so much on the angels and what is that like that we forget about Jesus, because more impressive than an angel is God who sent his spirit to be right with us right? That's that angels pale in comparison. So Jesus is Lord over the angels. He's also the God that walks among the lampstands. And you'll remember from Revelation 1, the lampstands are the churches. And a lampstand was symbolic of God's presence because in the temple of Israel, there were lampstands that had to be kept lit night and day as a symbol of God's presence always with them. But lampstands are chosen as a symbol of God's presence Because in a broken world, God's truth, God's kingdom, God's presence is like light in darkness. And the lampstands represent God shining his light into the darkness. And the way that Jesus has chosen to do that is through his church. It's through us. It's through me and you. It's through us, his church, not just a building or a campus, though that's a great place for us to gather, but through us, his church, living out the light of Jesus in an otherwise dark world. And how many of you know from social media or the regular media that the world can be a pretty dark place? And often what I'm convinced of is that no matter what solutions we keep trying to come up with, we don't have them. We don't know the way through the darkness. And Jesus comes and says, let me show you the way. Let me show you, and I'm going to show you through my people, through my church, through my lampstand that is shining light in the darkness. And so Jesus says, I'm king over the angels. I'm king over the churches. This is my plan. And this is my letter to the angel at the church of Ephesus, and as we'll see, to the people at the church of Ephesus And let's talk about Ephesus for a second. This was a major city. This was like a major West Coast port city. It was a huge city. A lot of business was done there. Cultures from all over the world converged there. The Roman Empire had a major highway through there, so emperor worship was a big deal in Ephesus. And before Rome, Ephesus was a big deal for Greek culture. And so the temple to the goddess Artemis was there. And alongside the worship of Artemis was all sorts of of Christian compromises, right? Worship of Artemis involved uh, loyalty financially. 
It involved loyalty sexually. It involved all sorts of cultic practices. And people in Ephesus were expected to participate because this was a draw from all over the world and it brought a lot of money into town. So if you were rejecting the worship of Artemis, if you were refusing to participate, which if you were a Christian, you had to, you were kind of in big trouble. You were gonna be at least socially rejected, if not in some other ways. And we see that with Apostle Paul in his journey as well. And so this was an interesting place that the church is developing in. It's also, though, the place that Paul spent a lot of his time on his missionary journeys. Paul spent more time planting the church in Ephesus than in any other one location besides prison. And his apprentice, Timothy, pastored this church of Ephesus. But when this letter is written, likely both of those men are dead at this point. And Ephesus continues on their legacy as the, the, probably the largest of the seven churches that are, are written to here. And so let's see what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. In verse 2 and 3, he says, I know all the things that you do. By the way, Jesus knows all the things that we do. He says, I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. And you'll find that most of these letters, Jesus opens with an affirmation, an encouragement, an exhortation of what they are doing well, that he's proud of them for. And I'll bet you that if Jesus was to speak to you personally, I bet there's some things he's proud of you for that you may not even be aware of. That he would say, hey, you don't realize it, but you're doing this really really well. And I bet he would say that to Sound Life Church. Hey, you may not realize it, but you're pretty awesome in a lot of different ways. Here's some of the ways. And to Ephesus, he says, hey, there's some things you're doing really well. You guys are very serious about living out my kingdom life, even to the point of enduring and suffering. Remember, those are, those are common words in the book of Revelation. We saw them already a couple times in chapter one, that as people who our purpose is to shine light in darkness, Light versus darkness will require some endurance. Light versus darkness will at times involve some suffering. And he says to the church at Ephesus who are up against this Artemis cult, who are up against the Roman emperor and, and his, his cult, he says, I know that you've suffered. I know that you've endured a lot. I know that you've gone through it and I'm proud of you for doing it. And he says, even more, you have not tolerated evil among you. Like you have not allowed evil to be, you haven't made excuses for any of that. You haven't, haven't brushed it under the rug. You have not tolerated evil people. He says, even, even people that came and said that they were apostles, said that they were godly people, you found out that they were actually liars and did not listen to them. And you might say, well, how, how did they do this? What, what was the key here? The key that Ephesus is being affirmed for is that they were doctrinally pure. They were committed to the beliefs that had been handed down to them by the Apostle Paul. They were committed to the scriptures. They were not going to compromise on the ways that they had been taught, even if it cost them dearly. They were not going to compromise. And so they were discerning about what was right and what was wrong. They were discerning about what was true and what was false. And the only way that God's people can ever do that is by being faithful to this. 
The only way that we can, in a very dark and confusing world, know what truth is, know what right versus wrong is, is by trusting God's word handed down to every culture in every generation. It has proven itself true and powerful. It has withstood kingdoms and empires. God's word is easy to be confused about, but it is unquestionable truth. And we are called to study it, to know it, to live it, to not question it, but to actually go deeper in understanding it. And at Ephesus, what that looked like is they weren't going to compromise this. At Ephesus, what it looked like is they weren't going to pretend when someone said, well, do this and this evil practice is okay. They weren't going to play around with that. They were loyal to God's word. They were committed to God's word. And I think that today we have to think about that. Because the first lesson that we learn about being victorious is that to be victorious, you have to think and act biblically. If you want to live the life that God has called you to live, you have to think and act biblically. And I'll be the first to say that's a discipline. That doesn't come naturally. Nobody gets born out of the womb and they're just like, oh man, you set such a biblical example right off the bat. No. No, if you've ever raised a child, you know the opposite is true. You're like, man, they really easily do everything the Bible tells us not to do. And then when you reflect a little further, you're like, wait, I'm that way too. Because we have to learn to submit to Scripture, to be obedient to Scripture, to follow Scripture. And when there's a part of it that we don't understand, we look deeper, we pray more, we seek in the community of trustworthy believers what is true. I think that we have to recognize that in our day, there are plenty of people that like to make plenty of money off of preaching lots of so-called Christian sermons. And we have to be discerning like they were about false teachers. We have to be discerning about what we're called to in the name of Christ that isn't always what Christ wants us, wants for us. We have to be discerning about those maybe on television or that we have no relationship with, but supposedly are messengers of Christ. We need to be discerning because some of them are great and some of them are awful. And the way that you know the difference is by knowing Jesus's words to you knowing Jesus' words to you. I think in a culture that is constantly calling us to biblical virtues, but in worldly ways, we are, our culture loves love, supposedly. As long as it's convenient for me, it doesn't matter if it's convenient for you. Our culture loves justice as long as I get mine and it doesn't matter what happens to you. These are biblical virtues that our culture is struggling to apply accurately because we don't apply them biblically. We don't apply them in submission to Jesus. We don't apply them the way way God's word prescribes for us to apply them. And that's not some harsh judgment. It just means that as the church, we are called to shine light in the darkness. We are called to bring wisdom where there's confusion. We are called to bring truth where there is falsehood. And the church at Ephesus was doing that faithfully. They were faithful in word and in deed. They were acting and thinking biblically, and there was no compromise there. And Jesus says, man, I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job with that. We as the church in our generation need to make sure that we are thinking and acting biblically. Can I tell you, gone is the day. Gone is the day when you can just bank on church once a week to be all that you need to live out a Christian life in our culture. Gone is the day when most of America is living some general version of Christianity. If that day was there, it's gone now. 
We have the responsibility because God loves our nation. He has mercy waiting to pour out on our nation, but he's calling them to see the light in the darkness, to come home to the city on the hill, to come home to his house that he has prepared for them. And we have to live this out if we are going to shine light in the darkness. We have to think this way. We have to act this way. And I know for me, a lot of times through studying, I realize, wow, I don't think that way. Do you know what happens when I realize that I think differently than God? I have to change. And change isn't easy. Change takes time. It takes repetition. It takes learning more of why does God see this and see that? Why does God call me to this and that? But as you trust Jesus in that journey, he teaches you how to operate that way. He teaches you how to live that way. And I just wanna encourage you, engage in that journey. Do not leave it for somebody else to do. I know that at times it's difficult, but it is worth it. And how good is it to have Jesus say, you know what, you're doing a great job. There's nothing better than that, nothing better than that. But Jesus does say other things too, as we'll find as we read on in this letter. So let's continue on Revelation 2 in verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this complaint against you. Oh, can we just stop right there for a second? Have you ever had somebody that you really loved and respected say, hey, we got to talk about something. We got to work on something. Oh, a boss or a parent or, you know, whatever. That is just the worst feeling, isn't it? You're just like, oh, I'm not perfect. But can we just agree right now we're not perfect? Like, we're all works in progress. That's okay. Jesus is every now and then going to come and say, hey, Caleb, um, you're doing great in a lot of areas, but I have one small complaint. And when Jesus issues a complaint, we should pay attention. So let's read on. He says, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Ooh. Look how far you have fallen Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Wow. That's an intense couple statements from Jesus. He says, I have a small complaint. You don't love me anymore. And I want to remind you who he's saying this to. He's saying this to a church that thinks and acts well. They are dutiful in their faith. They are doing everything they're supposed to do. They're believing everything they're supposed to believe. They're showing up where they're supposed to show up. They're serving where they're supposed to serve. Everything looks good on the surface. Their head's in the right place. Their hands are doing the right thing. But their heart is not engaged. Their heart's not engaged. He says, you don't love me like you did at first. You don't love the people around you like you did at first. In fact, many translations say you have forgotten your first love. Ugh. If you've ever been in a long-term relationship, you know that there are stages of relationships, and we're probably most familiar with romantic relationships, but how do people behave when they're first in love? I mean, think, think back. I just, I wish that some of the married couples in here that we just had a little film from your dating and engaged. And I'm really glad you don't have any film of mine. Because what do people do when they're first in love? They do stupid things. 
ridiculous things, like crazy things that later you're like, I can't believe I did that. Or you see other couples, if you've been married for a while, you're like, oh man, young love, that won't last long. Which is sad, by the way. And you know what, there's, there's some immaturity or some foolishness that appears, but you know what also is there? Passion. There's passion there. There's feeling there. There's a fully engaged heart. There's a heart that isn't worried about having everything perfect, that isn't worried about figuring everything out, that isn't worried about doing everything right. They just love. They adore. They're passionate about one another. And Jesus says, hey, I'm glad you're doing all the things right. And don't minimize that. He says, that's important. I'm glad you're thinking biblically. I'm glad. But don't do it without love. Don't do it without passion. And the second, the second lesson that we learn from this church is that to be victorious, you have to live with passion for God, with passion for God. It drives me crazy to think sometimes the way I respond to church, I'm like, you know, I, I, or the way, let's say this, the way I prepare sermons every now and then. I can slip into this pattern of like, here's the time, here's the passage I'm studying, here's all the accurate information, blah, 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 blah. And I praise the Lord, he always just slaps me upside the head every now and then. He's like, Caleb, really? Like, am I a history lesson? Or do you like me? Do you believe in me? Do you think I want to move through my word in people's lives? And we treat church that way. We treat small groups that way. We treat, we're like, uh, I don't know if I need another growth group session. I feel pretty, pretty grown right now. <laughs> I, I've got my group of people that I'm comfortable with, that are convenient for me, that know me, that will never ask me to change, that will never challenge me, that will never share a new thought with me. That's comfortable. I don't need to grow right now. Ugh. That's not passionate love for Jesus. I did my 2.5 times of attendance to church this month. I should be solid in my faith. That's not passionate love for Jesus. Right? We should always be. Now, you don't have to be perfect. I'm not saying that. There's going to be times where that happens or we slip into that. But what does Jesus say? He says, wake up. Get it right. Switch it around. Get back on fire for me. Restore passion for me. Because otherwise, I'm going to have to remove the lampstand. And I wonder over the years how many churches still call themselves a church, but Jesus is like, my lamp isn't there my angel isn't there. They're just going through the motions. They don't know me. They don't love me. They know things about me. They're doing things in my name, but they don't love me. Let us never sound life, church. Don't ever. Let's never be that kind of a church. Let's, if, if we're going to err on the side of something, let's err on the side of foolish passion for God of extending our lives for God, of extending our resources to God, of extending our emotions to God, that we would rather be fools. Who was the person that was affirmed for that in Scripture? David. And what did God say? That's a man after my heart right there. That's a guy that didn't get it right all the time. The man, he was after God's heart. You don't have to get it right all the time, but let's Air on the side of passion. Let's live with passion for Jesus. And where we fall back, let's repent. Can I tell you, every now and then in my marriage, I've had to go to my wife and be like, you know what, I'm sorry. I just have not been very 
emotionally engaged. I, I, I've been going through the motions. You know, I'm not, I'm, I, you know, and we all fall into this, right? We're like, this is what I have to do to not get in trouble. <laughs> this is what I have to do to be able to prove if an argument comes up that yes, I am an upstanding and fine husband. You should have nothing to complain about. But every now and then, I have to realize that it's more than checking boxes and performing duties. Sometimes I have to go above and beyond and be passionate and demonstrate I value the relationship that's been given to me. I value the covenant that I've made. I value the fruit of that relationship. And we have to do that with God. We should always be concerned. God, am I losing my passion for you? Am I slipping in my passion for you? And I'll tell you, young people, be passionate for Jesus. Be crazy passionate for Jesus. Don't hold back. Don't care about what other people think. Don't care if you're even doing it all the right way all the time. Jesus has plenty of grace for that. Just be passionate about God because he's worth it and he is passionate about you. Can I tell you for some of us older people and older, older people, and maybe you're really, really old, we have to be especially careful not to lose our passion for Jesus. That's what I loved at the Renew Conference. I saw people of every generation on their faces seeking Jesus. I saw people who, who they kneeled down for the first time in their life, teenagers seeking Jesus. And then I saw older people and I'm like, I know it costs them to kneel down before Jesus, right? But why? Because they were passionate, they were hungry, they were thirsty. You don't kneel down in front of a crowd of people because you care what they think. You kneel down because you know what the king deserves and you care more about what he thinks than what anybody else thinks. We are called to be passionate people. And out of our passion for Jesus, he directs our passions for other things in life. He uses the passions that we have, the hungers, the longings that we have, but it has to start with Jesus. And we have to renew that passion over and over again. And here's the cool thing. Jesus says, he says to the church at Ephesus, hey, but I have some hope for you. Why does he have hope for them? It's kind of an interesting statement. It's not a very like, it's not a very kosher statement for us these days. But he says, I have some passion for you because you hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. Interesting. Jesus like, you don't love me, you don't love people that well, but what really encourages me is you hate what those people are doing. How does that make sense? You know, hatred is not the most mature form of passion, but it's a glimmer of passion. The, the passion with which they hated the evil deeds of this group called the Nicolaitans, Jesus says, if you can be that passionate about doing what's right, then if you could just direct that passion towards me, you're gonna be in good standing. And also, their passion against the Nicolaitans was passion to remain loyal to God because the Nicolaitans were a group of people that were trying to, that were encouraging Christians to blend Christianity with Artemis worship. So they're saying, yes, love Jesus, but come sleep with this temple prostitute so we can all be friends here in this community. Yes, love Jesus, but if you could also tithe to the temple of Artemis so that our economy can be what we want it to be and you can show yourself loyal, then we'll all be friends together and it'll be happy. You can see how that works, right? Because in any time that there is a minority and a majority, we're always saying, the majority is always saying, if you could just be like us, then we'll all be okay. And as Christians in this world, we can't do that. 
And the, the, the church at Ephesus was saying, no, we're not gonna go there. That is evil. That is idolatry. That is sin. We're not going to go there. And we learn another lesson about what it means to be victorious because Jesus is telling us to be victorious. We cannot make excuses for sin. We cannot make excuses for sin because it would have been easy for the church to compromise. They, would have, they could have said, man, we're supposed to be missionaries to this culture. Like if we, if we go participate in their temple worship, maybe they'll come to know Jesus. You know, if we just, you know, tithe to Artemis, it'll save us a lot of friction in our community. You know, if we just participate in some of these normal pagan sacrifices and practices, you know what, it'll, they, they might warm up to some of our worship and practices. Now, I, wanna, I want you to notice here, Jesus calls them to love him and to love people, but commends them for hating evil. Not hating people, hating evil. And that's often the difference between the Christian way of handling sin and the world's way of handling what they would call evil. Because right now in our society, it's just like, it's just like a, a, a big mud match of like, you're evil because of this, and you're evil because of this, and so I'm going to rip you down and tear you down and make everybody in the world hate you. And you know what's interesting? A lot of the different sides are pointing out things that are actually evil, but their solution is just as evil. We as the church are called to live lives of passionate love for God and people, but to make no bones about what is actually sin, to make no excuses for sin, to not pretend that things are okay that aren't okay. We as Christians need to lovingly and compassionately say, I understand what our culture says, but abortion is wrong. It's not okay. It's not a, it's not a God option. And if you have, have wrestled with that or you've had an abortion, there's grace and mercy for you like there is for all of us who have sinned. We need to say, hey, um, racism is wrong. It's not okay. It's, not, it's an ugly thing. And if you, have been, if you have committed racism, there's grace and mercy for you. And I love you and you're welcome in this broken family that's getting better. But we also need to say that about a lot of other things that aren't the popular issues of the day. We need to say that about sexual immorality. Guys, it's not okay to have sex outside of marriage. One man, one woman, your whole life, that's what marriage is. And if you have messed up in that, there's grace for you. There's mercy. There's mercy for me. Sexual immorality of any kind is not okay. And if we want to be victorious in Jesus, we need to say no to that sin, especially in our own lives, right? We need to say no to the different abuses that we engage in. We need to say no in one of the greediest cultures that's ever existed. We need to say no to greed and materialism, to the need for more, 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 more. I want more. I want more pleasure. I want more stuff. I want more happiness. I want, I want more. Ugh. Get rid of it. Don't tolerate that in yourself. Use some self-control. Use some moderation. Say no to things just because Jesus is worthy of you saying no to stuff every now and then. It's healthy for us to say no to sin. Now, it doesn't mean we have to get all angry at everybody else around us. We don't have to get angry at everybody else who does have more money or more stuff or like, oh, they're greedy. Let's worry about the sin in our own hearts and lives. 
And make no excuses for it because our passion for Jesus, our loyalty to his word demands that we not tolerate sin. We don't make excuses for sin, but we love with grace ourselves and other people who have been victims of sin and have been perpetrators of sin. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's what his kingdom is all about, is restoring us. And so I want to say to you, you know what? I know, I know that there is sin lurking in your heart. And you can know that there's sin lurking in mine. And Jesus says, if you want to be victorious, don't tolerate that sin. Go passionately pursue Jesus. That is the key. In fact, if you're trying to overcome sin in your life, the best way to overcome sin is to stop focusing on the sin and to passionately, obsessively pursue Jesus. I've talked to many young men who have struggled with lust and that kind of thing, and I've said, hey, stop focusing on saying no to yourself and start saying yes to Jesus. That is the best way to feed your spirit and feed your soul and hunger after God. Whatever your sin of choice is, hunger for Jesus. Be passionate for Jesus. Allow him to move in your life. And Jesus says it's going to be worth it. In this last verse here, in verse 7, Jesus says, anyone with ears to hear. Now that is a word that prophets said when it was a word of judgment. You're either going to respond to it or you're going to reject it. If you respond to it, there's blessing. If you reject it, there is discipline. And so he says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Churches. Saying this is for all the churches, not just Ephesus. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You know, no human being has ever tasted of that fruit of the tree of life. God meant it for us. He put it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve sinned, he took the tree of life away. He said, as long as there's sin ruling in humanity, it's not good for them to eat from this tree of life because they'll live forever in a state of dominating, being dominated by sin. But Jesus' desire is to lead us back into a place of freedom from sin and freedom in relationship with him where we can experience whatever the fruit of the tree of life tastes like and by the way, that is the fruit of eternal life. And then we get to experience what paradise is like, paradise that was lost by Adam and Eve, paradise that never reached its final stage, that Jesus is going to bring us into a completed paradise, and we will enjoy it and adventure in it with him for eternity if we're victorious. And how are we victorious? We respond to Jesus' words to his church. We take the Bible so seriously that we are going, we are committedly thinking and acting biblically. We take Jesus, not an idol, not a dead idea, not a theory. We take the person of Jesus so seriously that we are passionate about him. And when we fall short of that passion, we repent and renew our passion in him. And that wherever necessary, we don't make excuses for sin. We repent of those two and say, Jesus, I'm all yours. There is no other God for me but you. There's no other obsession for me but you. Every other passion pales in comparison to you. Jesus, I'm responding to you. And Jesus says the people who do that, even though there will be endurance required, 
even though there will be some hardship and maybe even some suffering at times, he says, you're going to win the race. You're going to win the race. And I'm going to be standing there at the finish line waiting for you to cross that line and come into paradise with me. That sounds like a pretty good reward. Jesus speaks correctively. He exhorts us and calls us not because he is a harsh God, but because he's a gracious God saying, come and be with me. Come and receive the reward that I've had for you all along. Come and leave behind the cheap things that the world would tempt you with and find the real things that I have in store for you. That's what God offers us. Would you bow your heads with me? Those sitting at home and in our other venues, bow your heads and let's have ears to hear this morning what the Holy Spirit would say to us. Father, I just ask you to speak to our hearts how you would have us each as individuals apply your word to us. I ask that you would encourage those who need encouragement, that they're on the right track. I pray, Lord, that you'd give hope to those that have suffered and those that are enduring difficult circumstances, that they would know that you see them and you're commending them and you're cheering them on. And Father, for those of us that need to renew our passion, would you strengthen our commitment to you? Would you rise up in us a conviction to renew our passion for you? And Father, would you give us eyes to see any sin? What sin issues do we tolerate if we're not careful? What sin issues are we so easily tempted by? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would set us free from our false gods to be passionate about the living God. Help us to embrace our purpose as lights in a dark world and help us to see your vision of paradise at the end of it. We love you, Jesus. Our lives belong to you and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we go today, I just want to not rush from a moment of conviction. Too often in our culture, when something doesn't feel happy, we run away from it. Jesus lovingly invites us into correction, says, hey, let me help you win. Let me help you be victorious. What's he calling you closer in today? What's he calling you closer in today? I had a sense as I prepared this message that there are some of us, maybe many of us, that need to take this moment to draw a line in the sand of our own hearts and say, I am Jesus's. I do belong 100% to Jesus, but I haven't lived like it. That I need to rededicate my life to him. I need to to be renewed. I, I want to experience mercy anew and I want to express my passion to God anew. I don't want it to just sit as a duty in my life or something that I have to do to be a good person. I want to live passionately and biblically in relationship with Jesus. So would you bow your heads with me one more time? 
And I just wanna ask, I wanna pray specifically for those of us that are experiencing that call to renewal. If that's you, and you wanna rededicate your life to the Lord, you wanna return to that first love again, you, you, you've wandered from it a little bit, you've gotten caught up in lesser things, and you want to be passionate for God again, would you just lift a hand as a step of faith? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any others would say, thank you. God, renew my passion for you. Thank you for that hand. I see that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is the call of God to our hearts that we would be passionate and biblical lights in this darkness. Now, would you all stand with me? And whether you're acknowledging you need a renewed passion or you're by not acknowledging it saying, I am on fire for God, would you do this with me? Would you just raise your hands to God as a sign of surrender to him? And I want you to make this prayer your own in your heart. Father, I belong to you. Father, I am all yours. Father, make me a burning light, a shining light in this world. I pray, Father, that my coworkers and my family and my friends and all those that know me, all those that follow me on social media, all of those that are around me and run into me, Father, I pray that they would know that there is something different about me than what they've seen in this dark world. I pray, Father, that they would see in me a truly biblical example that when they open your word, they don't see a different story. They know that I I was an illustration of what it's talking about. I pray, Father, that when they wonder why I'm so committed to my faith, that they recognize that there is a passion there that exceeds anything that they've seen before. I pray, Father, when they wonder why I won't engage in sinful practices, that they would see that there is a vision of something greater, of the paradise of God. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, as your church, that would you use our passion. And for those that raise their hands, Lord, would you renew them in their devotion to you, renew them in their passion for you. Set them on fire again like they were when they were a brand new Christian, like they were when they were first filled with the Spirit, like they were when they first experienced your mercy and your grace. Father, would you help us to walk passionately for you? in this broken world. We love you, Jesus, and we need you. We need you. So Father, let your lampstand burn bright at Sound Life Church. Let your lamp burn bright and let our community know that there is a God in heaven that is loving them, that is calling them to freedom from sin, that is calling them out of darkness into your wonderful light. And use us, Lord, to be that light. We ask that in your name, Lord. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Church, we don't come here every week just to be a good community. We come here every week to be reminded of who we are and who our God is and what this life is all about so that we can go live it out in our community. They desperately need to see living examples of what God has said. You are that example. You are that example. So be that example with passion, with zeal, understanding the grace that God has for you. And here's God's guarantee. You're gonna be victorious. You're gonna win. 
You're not gonna lose, you're gonna win. It's awesome, give God a hand. So as I dismiss you today, go in the grace of God, go in the power of God, and go with passion for Him that will fuel you through the difficult times and be a light to this world. I love you, and we'll see you next week.